0: I want a divorce. Sadly, the vast majority of you in this room have been affected by those four hopeless words. Maybe you spoke them. Maybe you were the recipient of them. You heard them but it's rare to find a family these days who's not been impacted in some way through the horror of divorce. I know enough to know that any discussion on this matter is a tightly woven minefield that is nearly impossible to traverse, but to get to this morning's text in Ezra chapter 10, we have to talk about this. The history of divorce in the United States is a sad one. Divorce was such an uncommon thing that was not even included in the census until 1867, and even then, it didn't even register a full percentage point of marriages affected until decades later. But as time progressed, the number grew, the number of divorces grew. It made a jump in the late 40s and 50s, no doubt, to the multifaceted complications of World War II veterans coming home. That was a tough time, It grew steadily over the decades. It spiked in the early 1970s just after the then Governor Ronald Reagan foolishly pioneered the no-fault divorce bill in the state of California. For the first time in the modern world's history, according to our study this week, people could cut out on their marriage without even giving a reason, and America led the way in that atrocity. Divorce boomed in the 80s seemingly making it commonplace, but thankfully our divorce rate in America is and has been on the steady decline for some years now. That should be a cause for rejoicing. However, the stats prove that most are just opting out of the covenant of marriage altogether rather than deciding to stick through the tough season. It is so sad a poll by the National Library of Medicine earlier this year revealed the top reasons that people give most commonly as to why they are seeking divorce. At the top is lack of commitment, followed by infidelity, constant arguing, too young, financial issues, substance abuse, and domestic violence. Let me, let me tell you, we need to mourn every single one of these. I've officiated dozens of weddings in the last, last 15 years, and I think that I've seen marriages break up for every one of the top seven reasons listed. We ought to seriously pray for our own marriages and those of our fellow Christians that they not succumb to these kinds of pressures. Whatever your view on divorce, however detached it might be from biblical directives, even the most amicable of situations, there is a reason that divorce is studied by health professionals. It takes a toll on everyone involved. I am so sad that many of you have had to live through it. Divorce has always been heartbreaking. We may treat marriage and divorce flippantly in our modern age, but just know that it is exacting a price on generations following us. That truth is never more clearly stated in all of Scripture than in the post-exilic time period of the Bible. Ezra chapters 9 and 10 reveal a gut-wrenching scenario. To catch up to speed... Ezra's arrived in Jerusalem. He's sent by the Persian king Artaxerxes to reinstate worship of Jehovah in the capital there of the Jews in Jerusalem. And upon arrival, Ezra sits down and he starts teaching. For 20 weeks of Sabbaths, he opens the law of God and he teaches his people from God's Word, from Scripture. Now in those days, they didn't have chapter and verse divisions as we do in our text. They, there was no Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Instead, they had what's called parashahs. In fact, uh, modern practicing Jews still continue in this parashahs. There were divisions of the law that would be taught one a week for a whole year. Ezra 8 tells us that for four months, 20 weeks, 20 Sabbaths, Ezra has faithfully preached the law of God, and I found it interesting that the 21st parasha, the division of the law, includes Exodus 34, the very first time that God commands the Hebrews to not marry those women who worship other gods. All that to say... The people have been hanging on every word that Ezra has preached they are desiring to do what God has required of them and as he opens the scroll daily or at least weekly to teach they are confronted with the fact that they had been actively disobeying the Lord and so they come to him in Ezra chapter 9 verse 1 confessing the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass." We dealt with this issue last week, but let me remind you, the intermarriage that is brought up in chapters 9 and 10 is not interracial marriage as we've coined it today. We are not talking about differences in skin color or eye color or societal customs or country flags or language differences, hairstyle or any other exterior thing like that. I said it last week, and just in case you got offended, I'll say it again. God is not as petty as some of us are making distinctions of things like that. All throughout Scripture, from Moses marrying a darker-skinned Cushite woman to Jericho native Rahab, her inclusion into the people of God, to the Moabitess named Ruth becoming the great-grandmother of King David, God has always, hear me, always desired for peoples of other nations to be gathered into his people. It's always been part of the plan. But Rahab, she left everything that she had in Jericho when the walls fell. Ruth made a cut from her old life, and in doing so, she spoke some of the most moving of soliloquies in all of Scripture when she says to Naomi, or to us, to Naomi, in verse 16, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you, for wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This is what the Lord wants. People of other nations to give up the worship of other gods and to make the worship of the one true God theirs. Always open arm for them to gather into his family. God loves other nations coming into his holy nation. In fact, in Ezra 8 earlier, we're told that a huge group of Gentile converts called the Nethanim, they assemble with Ezra to go to Jerusalem. And they were the ones who were asked to assist the Levites in some of the temple work um, there in the newly built temple. Earlier, in, earlier than that, in Ezra chapter 6, verse 21, we're told that for the first time in recorded Jewish history, there was a vast number of Gentile converts who joined the Jews in partaking in the Passover meal. That had never happened before, but it does after they come back from Babylon. Gentiles who are wanting and longing to worship the one true God, they leave their other gods aside and they take Passover with the Jews. God is all about people from other nations and tribes worshiping him. So no, this is not a racial or ethnic issue. This is not a, oh, they don't look like us or they don't talk like us or they don't have the same societal customs as us. This is a worship issue. The Jews in Ezra 9, they are confessing, we have married these people who worship other gods and we are participating in the same abominations that they are. That's the issue. It's not that they've grafted women, other women into their nation, it's that they are the people of God who are participating in grotesque, detestable, horrific acts like demon worship, necromancy, and sacrificial burning to death of their children. These women of other nations, they have no intention of integrating into Jewish society. They will not stop worshiping other gods. They will prostitute themselves to these Jewish men as an act of worship to their own nation's demonic gods and they will sacrifice their firstborn on its altar to seal their resolve. But last week, I told you, it's worse. It's worse than that. That's pretty bad. But it is more hopeless than that. Malachi is a contemporary prophet with Ezra. Actually, there's a pretty good tradition, Judaistic tradition among scholars that they think that Malachi may even be Ezra. Since the name Malachi is not really a name, it just means messenger of God. In Malachi's book of the Bible, the last of the Old Testament, he actually gives a little bit more background as to what's been going on here. It's not that these Jewish men have just married pagan wives. That's sad. They have divorced their faithful Jewish wives to marry pagan wives. Malachi says, God sees what you've done. The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, your Jewish wife, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. I want a divorce. Those were the words that fell like bombshells in the homes of dozens of Jewish homes in the last 80 years that encompassed the book of Ezra. Jewish men who had left everything in Babylon for the worship of the one true God and rebuilding his temple in Jerusalem, they have uprooted their families and headed back to the land of promise only to get there and get distracted, sidetracked, and seduced by the daughters of pagan priests falling right into their trap. It was all a setup. It had happened before. Just read about it in Numbers 31 with the story of Balaam. This was a plot to catch God's people and it worked. No wonder Malachi says in chapter 2.16 that the Lord says, I hate Divorce. I hate divorce. Homes wrecked. Lives upended, generations destroyed, wives devastated, children abandoned, all because dad wanted to do what dad wanted to do. Who cares about anyone else? Who cares about what God had commanded? He wanted to be happy, and if that meant forfeiting everything that God had blessed him with for a pagan ploy, he did it. He sold his soul to it. Malachi goes on to liken to such a man who would divorce his wife in this way as one who would nonchalantly do violence, unspeakable violence to someone without cause. He says, you are worse off than the ax murderer who just gets kicks out of killing So we do not have a picture here in Ezra 9 and 10 of of young boys sowing their wild oats, getting involved with pagan women because they're young and restless, as if that's any excuse anyway. It's not. What we have here in Ezra 9 and 10 are mature heads of households literally coming home one day from their jobs and saying to the mother of their children, I'm divorcing you because I've found someone else. that is devastating in our culture. Some of you have walked that path, and I'm sorry for it. But even more so in their time. That woman, that divorced woman, is now relegated to poverty for the rest of her life. If culture would dictate that if her father is still living, She may be able to move back in into his home, but it will always be with a good amount of shame attached to it as the one who could not meet her husband's desires or expectations. She would wear this as a red crimson A on her chest her entire life. Her prospects of remarriage were virtually none. She would have to provide for her children as a single mother during an era that was hardly ideal for single motherhood. There was hardly a social safety net. That husband had just condemned his entire family to a slow, painful, and impoverished death. His children would be treated as pariahs with big question marks surrounding their welfare and future inheritance always hanging over their heads. If he could so easily divorce them like that, who's to say that he would actually provide for them in their future? You see how bad the situation is? All of this and more is why Ezra had the reaction he did that we looked at last week. Chapter 9 tells us that when he heard this confession from God's people, that some of them had done this, and that others of them allowed them to do this, they idly stood by without grabbing the guy by the shirt collar and saying, wake up, man. They let him do this. Ezra then, hearing this, he immediately falls down, tears his robes, plucks out his hair, plucks out his beard, he weeps, he fasts for the rest of the day, until ultimately he prays to God during the evening sacrifice. And that's where we find ourselves in Ezra chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel for the people wept bitterly. Maybe it's just my own imagination, maybe it's based upon my study, but I I get the sense that Ezra is being so loud on the temple steps, weeping and crying out to God, that that is why everybody's gathered around. People hear wailing in the center courtyard of the temple, and they come to see what happens. The word spreads, We finally told Ezra, we've confessed. And everyone is standing around the temple, weeping bitterly. Who knows how long the congregation stood there. It's not in the text. I imagine it was hours upon hours. The evening sacrifice was usually around 3 p.m. Beginning then, this probably lasted into the middle of the night, until finally someone speaks up. Verse 2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We've trespassed against our God. We've taken pagan wives for the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? In the middle of despair, in the midst of ruin, at the heart of weeping and mourning, there is hope. You know, hope is a beautiful thing. You've heard the quote, I've shared it with you before, man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, and about eight minutes without air, but only for one second without hope. Hope is necessary for life. I found it interesting this week in my study that the Hebrew word for hope and the Hebrew word for pools of water share the exact same root. They are eerily the same. It makes sense, though, in this desert-traversing nomadic Bedouin lifestyle in which the Hebrew language was founded, Think of it, wandering in the desert, empty water skins, no well in sight for days, longing for a drink. You know what hope begins to look like? Hope begins to look like a pool of water just off in the distance to a dehydrated body. Well, the people of God are spiritually bone dry. Ezra's prayer, though it is beautiful, confessional, and transparent, Read it for yourselves. I hope you did last week. It doesn't even come close to asking God once for forgiveness. It's beautiful. He confesses all the sin, but he doesn't even dare to ask God for forgiveness. The closest he gets is that he is acknowledging that God is gracious. gracious. He says in verse 13 of chapter 9, you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. He's not asking for a clean slate. That's too much to ask. He's just saying you have punished us less than we deserve and you're gracious for it. But he closes the prayer hopelessly. There is no ending and Father forgive us of our trespasses. No, it's verse 15. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt though no one can stand before you because of this. It is empty of asking for forgiveness. It was too much to ask, I believe Ezra thought. So longing for forgiveness but too parts to even ask for it, Shechaniah steps up. There is still hope in Israel in spite of all of this. Okay, Shechaniah, what is this hope in Israel in spite of all of this? His answer is in verse 3. Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who've been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of God, of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, Ezra, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Are you reading this with me? Are you tracking what's happening in the text? Shekiniah's hope-filled answer is divorce again. We've sinned, we've divorced our Jewish wives, we've married heathen wives, now because we've sinned, let's divorce them and we'll make this all right again. Let us put away the wives and those who've been born to them. Let's abandon another family. He speaks of all this. as This is what we're going to do. This is the hope in Israel. This is the answer to the problem. And then he looks to Ezra and he says, this is your responsibility. We'll help. And I can just imagine Ezra saying, thanks. Really? Thanks. Verse 5 Ezra arose after the proposition, and he made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all of Israel swear an oath that they would do according to his or this word. So they swore an oath. Imagine the faith and the trust that the people of God had put in Ezra to make an oath before God, carte blanche of whatever Ezra decided was necessary to do in this situation. He doesn't even know what to do yet. Shekaniah has said, divorce the pagan wives. Leave them. Leave the children behind. Ezra's response is, y'all all all promise me, y'all all all take an oath that you will do whatever I say. And they blindly say, yes, we will do that. Verse 6. Ezra arose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoanan, of Jehoannon, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem. And that whoever would not come within three days' time according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So the directions are clear. Everyone, meet back here in three days' time. If you don't, all that you own, all your land, all your possessions, it will be seized and you will be kicked out, denationalized, left out of the promise of God's people. We talked about the birthright and the blessing this morning in D6 Sunday school classes. That would not be offered to you. You would be a man unto yourself if you do not come back in three days' time. And for three days, the time it takes to get the word out and bring everyone back to the temple, Ezra fasts and prays. He's seeking the counsel of God in this matter. What should he do? If you've ever had to make a decision in a lose-lose situation, you might begin to feel what Ezra does, except he's making this decision for thousands of people. Thousands of people. And at the end of those three arduous days, Ezra exits the temple chambers And he sees thousands assembled before him. Scripture tells us that every single Jew in Jerusalem and the surrounding region, everyone who had left Babylon, they made it back. And they are all anxiously waiting. What will Ezra say? To make the scene even more dramatic Verse nine tells us that they are all gathered outside in the temple courtyard and he on the steps and they are shivering in the pouring rain. Ezra is soaked to the bone. He's yelling over the driving rain and he stands before the people of God to give his pronouncement. This is what he's fasted and prayed over for the last three days. Verse 10, he stood up and said to them, you've transgressed You've taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore, make confession to the Lord. Agree with God about your sin and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. I am convinced that this is the passage This is the reason why the majority of us have never heard a sermon series preached through the book of Ezra. It is hopeless. We've tended to avoid this book. When we do study it, we tend to avoid chapters 9 and 10 like the plague. What's going on here? Is this really God's will for the Jews to divorce from these Wives, too, to leave more relational and generational scarring. I will say it as plainly as I know how. I don't know. Not once in Scripture does God ever command someone to divorce. Not once. There are legitimate allowances, namely for adultery and abandonment. One could divorce for those reasons, but they were never commanded. To do that, to me personally, it seems as though Shek and I is a little too eager with this solution. And before you go off saying that, oh, Corey doesn't agree with the Bible, remember that the Bible is both prescriptive and descriptive. Here's what I mean by that: it is prescriptive, in that oftentimes it relays the commands of God. Think of the Ten Commandments: "Thou shalt not." If God tells you to do something in His Word, you'd better do it. If God says don't do something in His Word, you better stay away from it. He prescribes righteousness to us. But Scripture is also descriptive in relaying historical accounts. Take for example example, the story of David and Bathsheba. In this horrible account, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, finds out that she is pregnant from the affair, tries to cover up his sin by bringing her husband Uriah home from the battle, when Uriah is too noble a man to cover up David's guilt, David has Uriah murdered. Not one person in their right mind would read that episode and conclude, see, it's in the Bible. It must be okay. Adultery, murder. It's okay. David did it. He was a man after God's own heart. No friend, that is descriptive. It's just laying out what happened. At very least, the series of events in Ezra 10 are descriptive. This is not a passage of scripture, hear me, this is not a passage of scripture which prescribes divorce for your personal situation. In fact, the Spirit through Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12-13 through actually deals with this exact same issue in the New Testament by telling Christians that if their unbelieving spouse is willing to live with them and not divorce, do everything in your power to live with them, to stay in the marriage. Narrative is not normative. Just because it's in the text doesn't mean that that's God commanding you to do it. Is what I'm trying to get to. Quite honestly, I struggle with the idea that the answer to divorce is divorce. We all know the old old adage, two wrongs don't make a right, and while that verse, as many might think it is, is not in the Bible, there's a biblical principle of not doing evil in the face of evil in Romans chapter 7. We do not respond with evil things by doing other evil things. The fact of the matter is that more women, not as innocent as the first divorced, I understand that, they will be hurt. And more children, probably more heart-wrenchingly, more children will be abandoned. I find great consolation in the wisdom of Ezra, however, in the verses 16 and 17 of chapter 10 because it details that he and a group of elders, they sit down and they interview every single person affected by this decree over a series of three months. This is no brash decision. It may seem as though It was three days in the praying over and three months in the interviewing during which time I can only imagine that if there was any pagan who repented and clung to the worship of the one true God, well, they were allowed to stay among the congregation married to these Jewish men. I'm reading into that. But there's three months of interviews and they have to do something during that time. Those three months revealed that 114 men had taken pagan wives. And they were from every echelon of Jewish society. From the priests, to the Levites, to the singers, to the common everyday descendant of Abraham. Each guilty, needing forgiveness, offering a ram for their sin, and it seems the vast majority having to divorce their pagan wives who are unwilling to relent and take up the worship of Jehovah. And after a listing of all of those names, the book ends with this epitaph. Verse 44. All these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. If that final sentence, particularly about the now fatherless children, again, lays heavy on you, it should. Big time. All of the questions about the validity of Shekinah and Ezra's directives to divorce these women aside, the truth is, is that the consequences of our sins are devilishly devilishly destructive. You think you can control your sin? You cannot. You think you can control the consequences of your sin? You cannot. This is not some light thing here. Generations will be affected by what's done here. These men had sown to the wind and they had reaped The whirlwind. What's worse is that their children lose more than anything and literal generations will be affected by these divorces. The emotional angst, the spiritual battles, the questions of self-worth coupled with the abandoning them to the worship of pagan, demonic gods is the recipe for centuries of drama. Do you understand how desperate a situation this is? This book, it is anticlimactic to the thousandth degree. I mean, we have gone through a roller coaster of emotions from Ezra 1 up to this point. There, there have been high points of national revival and, and dependence on God. People have done some amazing things for the Lord. They have stepped out on faith. They've said, we're not going to take an army. We're not going to take a security guard with us. We're going to take $5 million and we're going to get to Jerusalem and the Lord's going to do it. We trust Him enough to do it. There are incredible high points in this story. So to end the book of Ezra here, tragedy. It doesn't even come close to what this ending is. It is a hopeless situation in which the best solution involves divorce and abandonment. And I do think that's the right way to settle on it. This is a lose-lose, and the best is this, what happens. Do you feel that today? I don't know how close to home this hits. Maybe it's it's like, in your mailbox, you have gone through some horrible atrocity like this, this year. And as we've kind of turned the corner going into December, we oftentimes look back over the last year and we oftentimes contemplate all of the things that we have gone through this year. And perhaps you are looking at 2023 and you are saying this was a year of hopelessness we have had many in our church who have died we have had some divorces we have had some horrible things happen to family members and friends it has been a tough year and it looks hopeless do you feel the hopelessness of this you're looking at your life in particular whatever it might be and there's this overwhelming sense of loss i want you to hear the truth of ezra Yet, now, there is hope in Israel in spite of this. I told you earlier that Malachi was at very least a contemporary of Ezra. Commentating on this exact issue of divorce. His is the last book of the Old Testament. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to that passage of Scripture and Malachi. Go to Matthew and then just go back left a couple of pages to Malachi just a couple of verses after his pronouncement of God's hatred over divorce because of its effect on the innocent, Malachi then hopefully writes in Malachi chapter 4 what David read to begin our whole service this morning. But to you, who fear My name, the Son of God, Notice the capital S. The Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Skip down to verse 5. The Lord says prophetically through the prophet Malachi, Behold, I will send You, Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He, verse 6, underline it, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Ezra ends by saying, Cut them off, the women and the children. Divorce them, abandon them, leave them. Malachi, contemporary to Ezra says, there is coming one who even his forerunner, what he preaches, It will bind the hearts of the fathers to the children. It will bind the hearts of the children to the fathers. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings and one will come before him, as I said, a prophet who's preaching repentance will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. The generational curse of sin would be broken by the S-O-N who will rise. You are meant to be crippled by the hopelessness of Ezra chapter 10. You are meant to feel like this is a lose, 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 lose situation. You are meant to have the hopelessness crash in around you so that you can look to Luke 1 and see that the son of righteousness is Appearing, and there is a son coming who will be cut off from his father so that you can be joined to your father again. The angel comes to Mary and he says, You'll conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great, Mary. And He will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of His kingdom. There will be no end. The sun is rising. Hope in a hopeless, situation it's going to take 400 years of silence from malachi to matthew but you rest assured you take it to the bank that there is hope i loved the songs that brother jeff chose for us to sing this morning love them rarely do we get on the same page about what i'm preaching and what we should sing and I love it when the Lord just kind of connects it together. All our hope is in You. All our hope is in You, God. The light of the world. Hm. A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That sun is not a ball of fire in the sky. It is Christ Himself who has come to rescue those who have been abandoned and to make right relationships of those who have been cut off. There is Such hope. There's the pool of water in a dry and thirsty land. Father God, I do not know the situation which has brought each and every person here this morning. But I know that the same answer can be given to every single one There is hope. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.